I looked at some of these pivots that are variable to light that we need some workhorse in their background because we can't get enough water on those spots. Global shortages are causing farm input costs to skyrocket. A better way to farm shows you how to take control of inputs and maximize profits so you can farm the way you want. Now, from America's heartland, here's your host. Hello and welcome to today's podcast episode of The Better Way to Farm, where our goal is to improve yields and increase profits for farmers across America. Thank you for tuning in today, guys. We're very lucky today. Got a topic that Karen has been pretty big on here for quite some time, and she wanted us to do an interview with a seed professional, someone who can help us figure out maybe seed is not just seed, but maybe that there is an art or a science or both to getting this matched up right, to getting the most out of each acre that we own. And so we have an expert, someone who we've had the opportunity to work with for several years, have a great deal of respect for this individual. I'd like to welcome to the call, Mr. Andrew Geike. Andrew, thank you. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me on. We really appreciate your time, Andrew. I know there's always a lot going on. I know you guys got livestock. I know you farm. You got a seed dealership and you're super busy. Lovely family there at home. But Andrew, tell us just a little bit about yourself, where you're from. Yeah, I'm As Rod said, Andrew Kiki, I'm from central Minnesota, Kimball-St. Cloud area, for those that are maybe local. McCain, their background, I grew up on a hobby farm. Dad is an engineer full-time, so it was always kind of a hobby. Uh, That accelerated into test plots at the age of 15 as a FAE project, and that kind of, over time, accelerated into the business we run today, which is basically agronomy sales. I handle... Probably 90% of my business is 90-plus is seed, and that's corn, soybeans, alfalfa, cover crops, the grass seed, some of that, and then a little bit on the fertilizer side and soil sampling and some of that. So that's kind of seed is is currently the bulk of our business. As of a year ago, it is what I do full-time. Before that, I had been doing some stuff with data management, uh, which I still do with the dealership, but just not as widespread for other dealers and other customers like I had been. So that was kind of a little bit of a change and allowed us to dedicate more time to our customers, also grow our own business. So, Well, I love that. That's fantastic. You know, I I look at the guys out here and the world is, it's ever changing. And the accelerated pace of learning is almost beyond comprehension. And I I know, Andrew, that getting the right seed on the right soil and just the bottom line is we got to do everything right. Everything we do matters. Talk to us. Pretend that you're coming to my house. And I want to talk a little bit about how does the interview go? What are you going to do to figure out how to get me the right hybrid on my farms, the right hybrids on my farms? Well, the first conversation I have as a general rule on, on any farm is, you know, a little bit about them and their operation and, and their goals and where they want to go. And what we're trying to arrive at is, can I even help you? Are we even a fit? Because maybe you know it already. I, I don't know. I mean, you, it's possible. You're the expert. I'm not. That's fine. And I respect that. And there's other times where maybe you just, aren't quite ready. Maybe you you buy from the neighbor and you always have, and that's what it is, or however it goes. So we kind of arrive at the fact that you're, you're receptive to listening, and then 
after that, we move on to, okay, what kind of ground do you farm? You know, do you have dry land? Do you have irrigation, heavy ground, light ground, hilly, tiled, needs to be tiled? I mean, like on our farm, for instance, we deal with anything from blow sand to irrigated blow sand to loam dry land and irrigated to heavy blue clay that it's just deep, dark, you can't even hardly get it to drain. So every field is a little bit different, and we can't treat any one of those the same, and that's, that goes for any operation. You know, when I go to, you know, even locally around here, say if I'm around Luxembourg and they're talking light ground, well, I'm thinking, you know, on an average year, we're 70, 80, 100, 120 maybe corn yield potential. I go to Watkins, they're talking light ground. Well, that stuff's still probably 160 on a dry year. So everybody's perspective on heavy versus light can be a little different, and we need to arrive at what is that. Now, after we kind of go through that conversation and talk a little bit field by field, we want to talk about rotation and pest and maybe some diseases you had in the past and weed control, you know, various different things because what we don't want to do is not have you protected if you have rootworm issues or put the wrong herbicide trait product out there that you can't spray something that's going to work. And that's kind of the kind of the wrong thing to do. Do we look at plot data a little bit locally? We can, but I'll tell you in 15 years of plots, plots are good for a few things. One is looking at how it comes all the ground how it stands, what it physically looks like, how it acts. The ultimate number of yield tells us sometimes a little bit. Sometimes it can tell us, it can throw us way off. So I don't like to get hung up on plots that much, which was a hard fact for me to absorb as I very much like research and analyzing data, and that's what kind of got me into what I do. But, you know what? And I think, Andrew, that that's one of the deals is, yeah, I can, you know, I've been to many field days. As you know, I've hosted a little over a 1,000 field days. But it makes a difference, especially when we're doing hybrids, because if you put a hybrid on there that, let's just say it's a light soil, and so you put something on there maybe that is a better match for a light soil, and then you've got something decided that really needs to be where it can run, some great big racehorse, I think we can get some really skewed results. Are you agreeing with that? Yes, absolutely. Because year by year, some of our pivots, for instance, even sometimes they can handle a racehorse. Other years, the racehorse is going to fall flat on its face. And this year, we actually had some issues with an early frost, somewhat early frost. Well, late planting, somewhat early frost. I don't know that was even that early, but it was a frost nonetheless, and it, it definitely took some yield off of off of some corn, soybeans. And what was interesting is actually as you head north, some of the later maturity corn did better than what they did in, like, in our area. So it was kind of just, just how the timing worked out. And there's, you know, we had hybrid in our lineup that dominated every plot to the north, and it did that last to my plot. And... <laughs> People are really like plot data. We're like, why does it do so far in your plots? It didn't make it. 
And I go, how did they make it? Made it up here. Well, so I tell you, plots are plots. They're not perfect. They're not meant as gospel. They're not meant as they're meant as a tool. Um, they're starting point. One, they're start, one of starting the tools, point. a starting point. Yep. Yep. Correct. I and, I can get behind that. And this goes for you know any brand. You know, as I'm looking at at some plots that I've been in or and supposed to be in this year, kind of trying to choose how we're going to do things. And, and, I mean, there's a competitive hybrid that I run into frequently. It does really well. It was dead last in one of the plots I was in. I'm like, what happened? You know, I was a little confused. It's just it can happen. On the on the flip side, of course, they can be the top one. So what I tend to do with plots is let's take a good average, just look at different conditions, different things. We can pinpoint a few good hybrids out of that. But if we're always chasing after plot winners, we're always going to find the plot loser at some point. That's just kind of yep. what I've found <laughs> as a whole. Occasionally, there's a one-off that just always does well. But that's a pretty rare thing. But everybody wants the next best thing that's going to yield more, and that's what we're all after, and that's important. But what we don't want is we jump on it and comes back and kicks us. So, Andrew, could we talk a little bit about, you know, what are some of the hybrid characteristics that you – give me some from different soil types and different situations and the characteristics that you look at to match to that. Can you do that for us? Yeah. So, I guess one thing I failed to mention earlier was actually tillage methods is becoming more important than cover crops and not and things like that. Uh, so, it kind of throws another loop into things. But typically, you know, if you're looking at lighter ground – and you want to be able to drop the population a little bit, and you want some ear flex. You know, some of our top flexing hybrids, we can drop down to, we got a couple, we got guys that drop them down to 16,000, 17,000, and on a good year, they'll still do 180 on a really phenomenal year if everything just is great, which is, is crazy for the ground they're on. But on the flip side, we got some that are just good steady eddies, that have maybe a little more blocky year, they're a little more consistent, but there if you drop the population down to 16, you're going to kick yourself in the shorts. That's a guarantee. Um, and I've had people where, you know, so-and-so plants that hybrid does so well for them, I want it. And I'm like, no, you don't. What do you mean you don't want it? Or what do you mean I don't I don't want it on my farm? You don't plant thick enough. I'm like, well, why does that matter? Well, because it's a consistent cob. It's always throws out an 18 around by 30 long no matter what you do to the damn thing it just that's how it is now it won't yield it really any better any worse and if it dries out and we're in a drought well it cannot pollinate it can fall apart too so it's not perfect whereas something has a little more ear flex to it we can drop the population down it doesn't take as much water doesn't take as much nutrients and then it can adapt to it if things are good. Now, that being said, if things are good, what I've learned over my years of plots is the more ear flex we have in hybrid, and this goes for all brands, and I've yet to prove this on true, if we're planting 120 bushel corn and all of a sudden we're pushing 180 and we got a super flexy hybrid, they tend to fall apart when they're hitting those high numbers. And then fall apart meaning the stocks fall apart or they fall over different things. And that's all brands through all the plot research I've done, it just seems like it's a trend. And 
which is fair because that corn plant is bred to do one thing, make a cob. And when you put all your energy into making that cob, you got to give something else up. And that's kind of how those flex hybrids react. They just they'll keep trying to put yield on, keep trying to put yield on, and give something up versus some of your semi-flexes or more fixed. They don't necessarily cannibalize the stock as much. Um, so you can, get better standability. The gain with you gain off of the flex here, and that you can get some more yield, but you're going to give up standability. So if you use that hybrid, you need to use it knowing you're going to go harvest it first. Is that what you're telling me? Correct. Yep. I'm I'm the guy that's known to go out in fields and do a push test in every field fairly often. I mean, we're out there actively even into harvest, and I'll be calling a guy, hey, you got to get after this. And they're like, ah, do we have to? I'm like, yep. Yeah, but they, <laughs> they knew that. They knew that going into it. You know, we place things accordingly. Now, a couple of years ago in the drought, that caught some people off guard. And I kind of got a lot of grief because in my area, we were pushing to take corn off. We have enough livestock around. There's a lot of high moisture corn and stuff like that. But there's a guy that doesn't have any livestock combine corn. And for the next two weeks, three weeks maybe, people are like, oh, that corn, that, that corn you sell must not be very good. It's all falling over. I'm like, oh, well, you combine yours yet? No. You've been out there? No. And I said, well... Funny story, this is like September 16th, call it, and which is very, I mean, that's earlier when we normally do high moisture corn. Well, this guy was combining 16% corn on mid-September. Uh-huh. Yes, it was falling over because we we're in a drought. I mean, a severe drought, and it was just, it was ugly. I mean, that's all there is to it. And he listened to me when I said, get it off, and he was glad he did. Well, fast forward, and all of a sudden, some of these people are kind of giving me some grief we're coming to buy seed because they're like, yeah, you were right. You were the one that was pushing to get people to do this. And he goes, I regret not listening. It's all a different experience every year, like normal. But, you know, that's just kind of some trends I saw. You know, now when you get to the heavier ground, your flex hybrids will probably a lot of times suffer a little bit. I mean, they're maybe not going to get the top end yield. They're going to put everything into making that cob now hopefully your fertility program is set up to get a little more potential out of them that they'll hang on longer than they would on say sand but it it usually seems to me you get into a semi-flex unless you're really light pushing populations uh then there's some fixed year options but as a general rule semi-flexes are kind of your good in between they'll kind of stagnate if things are tough and they'll but yet they'll flex a little if things are good but, of course, you got to adjust your population based off those fields and those conditions. You know, if we're going on our heavy blue clay, yeah, we're going to want to be in the mid-30s because we lose a little. There's some other pounding rain come through, knock a few more out. I mean, it, it's just it's kind of part of the deal. So those are all things we just need to know to adjust and kind of move on. Now, I kind of mentioned earlier about the different traits and stuff. We want to make sure if it's, you know, multiple years of corn that we're protected against rootworm, or we are very active scouting for rootworm beetles, uh, which I think in most of the geography of the U.S., we should just be probably have the traits. Where we are, we can we have more trouble with corn borer than we do rootworm. Um, 
but we have okay. enough continuous corn that we need to watch all that. And even in rotated fields, a lot of times you can, can run with a double stack corn, you know, there's no blow ground protection. But in my opinion, you better be scouting, you better know what's going on out there. Because if there's anything that a rootworm is good at is adapting, and it'll adapt to anything. That's why we continually gain resistance, and that's why we continually see new traits, just because it, we know that that's what's going to do. That's just this next thing. Bread to do, so to speak. Yeah. Yep. So talk to me. I come to you. I've got really good dirt. I've got a pivot. Now what are you going to have me do? Well, I would start looking at some of my, you know, I guess top yielding hybrids. I'm going to probably lean more towards, like I mentioned earlier, more of a semi-flex. We're going to want to push the population. Now there's another question that comes into play. That's a whole other story, but that's, let's talk about your pivot a little bit. Let's talk about your fertility. Let's talk about some other stuff because you can have heavy dirt with a pivot, but our, does your management sustain the yield that we want to get to? You know, there's something else that's missing that, you know, we can switch hybrids and maybe we can gain a little bit, but we're not going to get you past a certain point without changing some other things. So I tend to, you know, obviously everybody likes to try a couple of bags of corn. That's always an easy trial to do, I guess. But I tend to ask a little deeper and, and find out what else is kind of going on. We want to know, you know, what's your yield goal? Okay, what's your yield goal over the next few years? And, yeah, how are we going to manage it? And how are we going to, maturity-wise, do we need dry corn? Or can we push the maturity a little longer? You know, is it going to be used for for grain silage? I moisture corn, any any number of things that all comes into play. You know, because we'll tend to add four, five, six days maturity to a hybrid if it's going to go for high moisture corn, because we can. And theoretically, we're going to gain more yield. Now, theoretically, what happens aren't always the same. So there are years such as this past year that you really didn't gain any yield from being a little later. But we got everything done timely, and it was, was no big deal. But there's other years, well, we're, we'll gain 10, 15 bushels. Well, 10, 15 bushels, when all your costs are about the same, is 10, 15 bushels. One of the things is you put yourself at least in the position. So, you know, even if it just does the same, at least you had yourself in the position that you could do better. I mean, Mother Nature is going to be the ultimate limiter, hopefully, and uh, we do everything else correctly. So you're hedging the bets, doing what you can to make sure that if we get the perfect season, we're getting the best thing out of this while not gambling and saying if we don't get the perfect season, we don't put ourselves in a bad situation. So it's an offense-defense. Yeah, you got to do everything to kind of put yourself in the position for the opportunity to do it. And yet by limiting your, your risk a little bit, you know, if we got on, going back to your question, a heavy dirt under a pivot, we may look a little more racehorse, a little less workhorse. Assuming you water enough, we should have unlimited yield potential. I mean, we just should. If your fertility there, the water's there. So versus if we start lightening up that pivot, you know, people tend to think because I have an irrigator, I need to go racehorse. Well, I got a little secret for you. I beat a lot of competition because I didn't look at it that way. I looked at some of these pivots that are variable to light that we need some workhorse in their background because we can't get enough water on those spots. No way, no 
there's no no way we can do it. We just can't. That's that's not possible because that's heavier ground, that's gravel, or that's low sand, or that's you know whatever it is. You got to figure out what that is, and you got to be able to handle it. You know, if you got consistent, nice, heavy ground, and you got water, you got unlimited potential. If you got an irrigator on sand, you actually have more potential than irrigator on gravel. And we deal with a lot of gravel too. And there, we just—if you put a racehorse out there, it's—it's going to do probably fine. But you're going to give up definitely some yield because. In the good spots, it's going to do really well. In the poor spots, it's going to fall apart. Uh, whereas we get something that's a little more, you know, you don't want a workhorse that's limited, but something in between, you know, a racehorse workhorse where it can have some upper end potential in the good spots, yet hang on in the poor spots. All of a sudden, your whole field average is more consistent, and that's how you put bushels in the bin. That's something I figured out early on in my career, and when people started doing trials and wanting to do side-by-sides when I kind of had to prove myself. There are products that I honestly, or brands that I was probably no better than at the time, or they're even a sister brand to the company I work with, and they're just as good, but I placed it better. And that's all stuff I found to matter that I, I think it's commonly ignored because everybody loves when you put a pivot in and you can just push the yield. Well, that's great. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's make sure that we have everything in place to push the yield. Or are we possibly, is there a possibility we can give a little up here because this part of the field isn't as good or whatever it may be? Absolutely. And so do you see a big variance in your wells in your area? Because I know know, I've got guys that I work with that have wells that produce monster amounts of water. And then I've got some that, eh, not so much. And what do you see in that realm there in your area? Uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So we just drilled. Uh, we're working on another well here right now, actually, uh, and just ordered the pivot this week. That one sounds like we got plenty of water. A thousand feet away on another field, we only had, and we were looking for 600, we got 300. Now, if we would have drilled 500 feet a different direction, we probably would add our 600, but we deal with DNR and some of the regulations and Trout streams, they call it. We're close to trout streams, so they watch us a little closer and stuff and whatever. We won't get into those details, but we've been able to work it out with them and some of that without too much trouble. But they also say you got to be X amount of feet from that trout stream. Okay, well, that was our choice, that area. I didn't get the flow we wanted. And we also hit granite. So at, I believe it was 57 feet, we hit granite, and that was it versus a lot of the other wells are 99 feet or 100 feet, you know, in our area. So even in our neighborhood, there's a drastic difference in flow of wells. And that, of course, as you're probably alluding to, does matter. If we can get enough water out there or not, you know, but also we can get too much water out there too fast. um, And that doesn't do us much good either. You know, people like to spin that circle as fast as they can, where we found that actually putting a little less on more often has proven proven to do better. Absolutely. Um, let's switch gears and talk traits for a little bit. What all were, talk to me about all the stack traits. Do you sell anything? Do you sell any non-GMO seed? What is your push on all of the different traits? Talk to us about that, please. I got a little bit of everything going on. So, you know, my backing is, is mainly bare, so I'm mainly your Roundups, uh, VT2s, Treceptas are coming on that side of things. 
uh, SmartStacks and now SmartStacks Pro. I did bring on another brand because I can get conventional corn from Bayer. Uh, I can actually get some of the newest genetics, but I can't get them untreated. And there's markets that require untreated conventional corn and also organic. So I had a couple growers that are some organic, some traded, and various things like that. So I've kind of adapted and worked with those growers. If they're, if they're good growers, I want to work with them. We've got to find a way to do it. We've been able to work together. Now, as a percentage, very little organic, very little conventional. Conventional has picked up quite a bit. Our company as a whole actually sells quite a bit of conventional just because of the fact that people have been able to actually really push some yields with conventionals. Now, agree or disagree, something I've kind of found too is with the absence of pests, now if we get no worm, no corn bar, no, I don't know, name a name worm, we can get more yield out of conventional corn than a traded corn in a lot of cases. Now, as soon as we get past, it's the opposite way rather quickly. Now, double stacks tend to cross really well, so they tend to not be too bad. Smart stacks, they used to have some trouble with it, but that's gotten a lot better. It's pretty rare now that the smart stacks, for some reason, will yield a little less. But that does happen on occasion. We have a couple hybrids ourselves that the smart stacks actually price lower than the double stack because... We know there's a little bit of a yield hit there. Now, it's not significant, and depending on conditions and depending on management, sometimes you're still better off with that smart stacks of that hybrid. So, kind of work through some of that. Smart stacks Pro now is bringing in another protein, and we could talk for hours on that too. But bringing another protein basically combat our resistant rootworm, which in parts of the country is a, a huge concern. Is it here? It's not quite as much yet, but we are watching it. I have walked field or a field. I can't say fields. I have walked a field that had AMXT, Chrome, Smart Stacks, and they're all laying on the ground from rootworm. It was their dairy farm, so they chop. Their dairy farm, so they also put a lot of corn in. <clears throat> so it's probably been corn for 30 plus years. So that was not a not a wonderful sight. At first, it was a phone call, you know, maybe a little butt chewing, why is your corn falling over? And then I go out there and look at it, and my agronomist from the seed company is able to come with, and we go out there, and he goes, he's like, we're just immediate. You know, he's he was a, well, he's a wealth of knowledge, been in the business a long time. What they found, actually, and I'm not here to pick on traits, that's not the goal, but if you do, if you are somebody that needs to, be in the AMXT Chrome world, that's fine. If you have rootworm issues, go AMXT over Chrome. That's not popular opinion with a certain company and whatever, but basically Chrome, supposedly they're supposed to get a little more yield out of it because it's a little cleaner trait. It's a better way of inserting the gene, yada, yada. It's a fancy new marketing term. I don't know, but that's all part of it. But the Herculex trait in Chrome is not expressed as heavily as it is in AMXT. So just okay. something on that side of things to, to watch a little bit that we found that out through some various events. And there's also options. There's getting to be some supply of the SmartStax Pro. So if you do have worm issues, you know, definitely be looking at the SmartStax Pro. I don't deal with the Syngenta side very much. 
and, and it comes down to the fact that the, the hybrids in our area just can't compete and yield. So therefore, we don't look at the traits very much either. But their traits tend to be cheaper. Normally, good and cheap don't go together. Just a thought. But everybody's got to do their own thing. And I'm not here to pick on any particular brand or company or traits, but just observations I've made. Because I do have the option to bring in pretty much whatever traits I want because of this other company I'm working with. And, I mean, I go with what works for my growers, and that's kind of, we've had to, I guess, what do you want to say, stick to the stick to the more expensive or better ones, especially for the amount of dairy that we work with. Right. Because that's where we're going to run into trouble. Yep, exactly. Well, Andrew, I've already eaten up more of your time than I thought I would. I really appreciate you taking time to be on the call. Thank you a lot. And to all of you who are listening, guys, we do appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in, and we really do hope you're having a better day. A better way to farm dot com. You're listening on the Verbal Crowd Network. Find more great shows at verbalcrowd.com.